Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast for the week of Sunday, January 31st, 2021, the year of our Lord. And I hope wherever you are, you're doing all right. I hope you're making it, surviving, doing whatever you can to uh, just get by these really difficult days. Uh, maybe you bought some GameStop stock this week, stuck it to the man, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's a little too rich for my blood. I'm not able to do that kind of thing. I actually had to have Jason explain it to me. He and like call him just wait, what is <laughs> what's going on with GameStop? I don't know anything about the stock market. So, uh, so if that's your bag, AMC, Nokia, whatever it is, I, I hope you made some money and remember don't sell. Okay. Don't sell whatever you do. That's just what I read on Twitter. So, uh, yeah, so that's about it. Baylor Bears, still number two in the nation. They should be number one. They're number one in Kim Palm. They have a big game against Auburn today. I know no one cares about that, but they're still undefeated for now. And so that is uh, a little bit of something that uh, I can celebrate, even though if no one else here cares. So anyway, we're moving on. It is the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, and we are still in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1, 21 through 28. This morning, I'm reading out of the CEB translation. Jesus and his followers went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and started teaching. The people were amazed by his teaching, for he was teaching them with authority, not like the legal experts. Suddenly, there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screamed, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One from God. Silence, Jesus said, speaking harshly to the demon. Come out of him. The unclean spirit shook him and screamed, and then it came out. Everyone was shaken and questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits, and they obey him. Right away, the news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee, the word of the Lord. Okay, it is the fourth Sunday after Epiphany, which is the season that we ask ourselves, what is being revealed to us in Christ? What is being exposed in our lives, revealed in our time and our context? So we talked at length about how the pandemic continues to reveal in apocalyptic fashion so much that is wrong and off with our society and our world from racial injustice to economic inequality, political, cultural, religious divisions that have even led to recent acts of violence, which we are still in the aftermath of all of that. That's another thing. Uh, we will also have you know, we have the opportunity during this time before the season of Lent, uh, where Epiphany, I think if we are open to it, it shines a light on our interior worlds. If we are uh, open to um, some time for self-examination and open to um, a willingness to, to kind of expose, be exposed ourselves uh, to some kind of change that Christ is calling us into. So the past couple of weeks, we've talked about uh, the nature of Epiphany in the Gospels and Jesus's invitations to the disciples to believe in the Gospel of John and to follow in the Gospel of Mark. And we've asked the questions, what does it mean for us to follow Christ? 
And what does it mean for us to really believe? What is the nature of belief? Can we even drill down to what that is and any, any kind of meaningful language for us today? And recently I've noticed that Justin Bieber has been, you didn't think I was going with Justin Bieber there, but recently I noticed Justin Bieber has getting some play on Instagram for his tweets about Jesus and them being the quote secret sauce is what he calls it. Uh, and while it's annoying to sound like I'm policing this crap, and I, I really don't want to get into the weeds about how uh, we shouldn't get our theology on Instagram from celebrities worth over a quarter billion dollars, I think the message is incredibly misleading and potentially dangerous uh, to to get this kind of theological message uh, about believing or following Christ from uh people like the likes of Justin Bieber, because I think this text, this is, a, this is a long way to get about it, but I think this story and this text in the Gospel of Mark is helpful to, to think about this in a new way. And what, what I think Justin Bieber is, is doing in, you know, and hey, you know, Holy is, is great. Uh, you know, it's a great song. Uh, I appreciate it. I, I, I can I can drive and listen to it in the car. Okay, it was on my fall mix. So, uh, you know, nothing knocking against the Bieber, but there's this dangerous move theologically uh, with the kinds of things that not not only him but many people post and kind of latch onto that I think can be not only misleading but potentially dangerous. I what I would think Bonhoeffer would certainly call cheap grace after you explained to Bonhoeffer what the internet was and what Justin Bieber is. So anyway, because this theology of cheap grace absolves people from the tough work of following Christ and, like Cynthia Bourgeau says, living from the kingdom of God. Uh, and here's how Bonhoeffer talks about the distinction and the importance of costly grace over cheap grace, which is maybe some space for us to explore this morning. And I think it's a long reading, but I think it's worth it. I'm going to have two long readings this morning, so let's see if I can read these uh, without too many uh, mistakes. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap Jack's wares. I don't know what that is. He wrote this in the 30s. Sold on the market like cheap Jack's wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth, the love of God taught as the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to the idea is held to be itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. In such a church, the world finds a cheap grace covering for its sins. No contrition is required, still less any real desire to be delivered from sin. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. 
Grace alone does everything they say, and so everything can remain as it was before. All for sin could not atone. Well, then let the Christian live like the rest of the world. Let him model for himself on the world's standards every sphere of life and not presumptuously aspire to live a different kind of life under grace from his old life under sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, we will gladly go and sell all we have. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell sell all his goods. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which we must knock. Such costly grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Okay, I know that was long, sorry about that, but I think this is um, important in our conversation around epiphany and asking the question, what does it mean to follow Christ and what does it mean to uh, embody something new in the world? And I think we, as we examine, uh, it means we not only have Christ revealed to us, but we have to consider how we might live in light of a kind of apocalypse or epiphany in which our story uh, in the Gospel of Mark today forces us to consider something bigger than just ourselves. Okay, so in our story today, Jesus's ministry officially begins in Mark's Gospel with an exorcism, (laughs) which might seem a little strange as a first move, but I think it will make sense if we unpack it uh, a little bit because This act by Jesus is not only about liberation for the individual, but also a signal for what his ministry will represent as a whole, which is a reordering of societal power and hierarchy, hierarchies of oppression, more specifically. Okay, so a question that we might ask is, what does it mean to live with a kind of imagination for our lives to be liberated from oppression and harmful cycles. Uh, and we'll, we'll kind of get into this. Okay, so I've spoken about liberation in the story as it connects to different forms of societal ostracization in the past, in the first century, when certain people would, would be deemed impure and unclean. One obvious conclusion that we can say from this is that Jesus crosses boundaries of cleanliness and societal hierarchy to liberate this demon-possessed person from uh, the underclass and the oppressive position that he was relegated to. So if we are followers of Christ, and a question we can ask is, how are our lives crossing the boundaries of who is in and who is out, and how to eliminate oppressive systems and structures that disadvantage people. We know that just as a matter of uh, historical fact that exorcism was 
a common first century practice that Jesus performed at least 24 times in the Gospels. And the words used in this text for unclean or impure or sometimes evil can all be used interchangeably. So we can think about those uh, terms in, in those kinds of ways. Unclean, impure, evil. You can change and swap those and and still, I think, get, get at the point. The first century historian, a guy, named, a guy by the name of Josephus, wrote about exorcisms in uh, the tradition of King Solomon. And we, at some level, just have to acknowledge the commonality of this practice while also asking how we understand Jesus to have liberating power over harmful and destructive forces in the individual lives of people and in societal structures. So these practices and their performance for us as people living in the 21st century will, especially in the U.S., will remain you know, unfamiliar to us. So I think that's just important to, to acknowledge in the beginning. The larger point still stands that the good news that Jesus talks about earlier in this gospel is a force of liberation, freedom, and peace from oppressive violence and oppressive power structures. There's uh, an author that Bob recommended named Ched Myers, and this is going to be the second long reading, but he he goes into an, an in-depth look at how what Jesus is doing here as his first act of ministry in the synagogue signals and symbolizes a broader vision for what Jesus's ministry is going to be about, not only in the Gospel of Mark, but uh, in the Gospel of Matthew and, and Luke as well, where Jesus performs um, many exorcisms, obviously, across the Gospels. So this is what Ched Meyer says. No sooner has Jesus set foot on the scribe's turf than he is confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. The demon challenges Jesus with the protest of someone anticipating invasion by a hostile force. Why do you meddle with us? Is what the demon says. However, the demon's defiance quickly turns to fear. Have you come to destroy us? Well, on whose behalf is the demon speaking? Could he be the voice of the very scribal aristocracy whose space is the social role and power that Jesus is threatening? The only other episode in the gospel in which Jesus converses directly with the demon takes place in an entirely different symbolic context, but exhibits striking parallels to this synagogue story. A little later, Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to Gentile territory for the first time. Again, just as Jesus sets foot on this foreign turf, Jesus is confronted by a man with an unclean spirit who also challenges Jesus' mission. This latter story is much more elaborate, including symbolic inferences. The setting itself is designed to suggest that the Jews um, were prototypically unclean. The Decapolis, which is 10 cities, one of the eastern frontiers of the empire, was strongly pagan. The cemetery environment, the madman dwells among the tombs, and the subsequent role of the herd of pigs 
reeks of, quote, impurity. The demon's protest is directly symmetrical to the synagogue encounter. This time, however, Jesus is addressed not with the Semitic title, Holy One of God, like the story we just read, but the Hellenistic Son of the Most High God. The clue to the social symbolism of the story of the Gerasene demoniac is its recurring military terminology. The powerful demoniac horde identifies itself as legion to Jesus, a Latin word which had only one meaning in Mark's social formation, which was a division of Roman soldiers. So Jesus drives legion into a herd of pigs. This term, inappropriate for pigs, who do not travel in herds. It was sometimes referred to a band of military recruits. So Jesus' command, he gave them leave, is a military order. And the word describing the pigs rush into the lake connotes troops charging into battle. So enemy soldiers being swallowed in the sea, of course, brings to mind Exodus 14. It could hardly be incidental that the number of swine drowned, about 2,000, corresponds to a number of Roman soldiers in a legion. Finally, when we read legion is so powerful no one can restrain him, quote, begged him, Jesus, earnestly to not send him out of the district. So the conclusion is irresistible that this is a symbolic representation of the Roman and military occupation of Palestine. These two exorcisms represent a dramatization of the inaugural challenge posed by the kingdom to the powers. To interpret them solely as isolated acts of curing epileptics is to miss the profound socio-political impact of story as symbolic discourse. The demons personify quite credibly, as far as the ancient mind was concerned, Jewish scribal and Roman imperial power, respectively. They concretely perceive Jesus as challenging their continued authority. In Mark's narrative strategy, once the demon has been symbolically vanquished by exorcism, Jesus is free to begin his compassionate ministry to the masses. Upon leaving the synagogue, Jesus attends to the healing of Jewish crowds, and he does the same for Gentiles the next time he crosses the Sea of Galilee back to their turf. Oppression has been unmasked and liberation announced. Thus, Mark, thus does Mark begin the gospel's bold challenge to the ideological strongholds of Roman Palestine and imperial America. Okay, so I, I know that was long, but it's, I think Ched Meyer's point is, is incredibly important because he details how Jesus's exorcisms are not just about how he has magical powers over illness or a person's well-being, but they symbolize a larger vision for the kind of liberation that Jesus's life and ministry bring to the world. Again, if we want to use the kingdom terminology, Jesus is revealing a kingdom that is completely different from the power of the Roman kingdom. And as Ched Myers uh, mentions, it challenges the kind of kingdom of American imperialism as well. And we can extrapolate that symbol and analogy to all areas of oppressive systems in our world. So I think this brings us back a little bit to Bonhoeffer's thoughts about cheap grace and costly grace 
so that we can kind of consider what it might mean for us to, or what it might require for us to follow Christ in order for us to experience um, a kind of liberating love. Okay, so another question. How do we experience liberation from our participation in practices of our time and culture or a mindset of our time and place to live courageously into a liberating future that we want to create for ourselves and others? I know that's kind of a long-winded question, but uh, another way to think of it, how might we ground our lives and practices of liberating love? And I think to be willing to, we talked about this a little bit last week, I think to be willing to change in this way will always require, require some level of honesty and vulnerability. And I know those are kind of buzzwords that are thrown around, but uh, some level of honest introspection that we have not yet arrived, that we don't have the complete or correct worldview, that we are recognize that we are constantly being, being pulled in a myriad of directions by external and internal forces that prevent us from living from, from and within the kingdom of God, as Bourgeois would say. Because the kind of kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating here in the beginning of Mark is one that pulls us into grace and, or brings us into grace and pulls out from us a measure of passion and kindness uh, in, in our lives. And I, I continue to go back to Bonhoeffer's idea of, of cheap grace versus costly grace and how it is really easy to, um, we live in a time in a place where I think similarly to, to Bonhoeffer, uh, people grab onto cheap grace really quickly. It requires uh, absolutely nothing. And, and what that produces is it can can be um, not only unhelpful but potentially dangerous which I think we've seen uh, Christianity in our country uh, become that okay final final little question so what could liberation for you look like or feel like what could liberation for you look like or feel like and this is particularly, I think, a difficult question to answer because we know so many people have been grieving and struggling, particularly over the last nine months during the pandemic. And we recognize that this question is incredibly hard to separate when our collective experience for the last nine months has been full of so much struggle, grief, hardship, uh, trying to juggle all of the normal stresses of life and paying bills with uh, parenthood and the social unrest and having to, to maintain some semblance of one's individual uh, dignity and humanity when everything in the world is chaotic and up in the air. And I think that we, we feel the pressure of what our 
world and society are going through. So this question around liberation is really difficult to answer, I think, when so many people are hurting, when so many people are isolated and lonely and struggling with depression. I don't want to pretend like this question is asked in a flippant way. What could liberation for you look like and feel like? What does it look like for our society and the place of power to be overthrown, uh, to, uh, to, to have a vision for the kingdom that reorders uh, the structure of society, one that values liber like constantly values liberating love. And I think that's where Bonhoeffer's challenge of, of costly grace really kind of uh, it confronts us right right in our faces of how in a society that so uh, rushes to, to cheap grace all the time that produces nothing, might we sort of be grounded, even in experiences of hardship and struggle and oppression, and maybe more so, it, it forces us to, to really grapple with difficult questions about life to see if there's anything true within it. Um, so as we consider these really hard questions and the really difficult circumstances of our lives and the difficult circumstances of uh, the people that we live with and know and see day to day, uh, I want to consider uh, a line and a thought from a famous British mystic of the 15th century, Julian of Norwich, who wrote about her revelations and really intense experiences uh, of Christ, meeting Christ, um, in the midst of her isolation and suffering. And then we'll kind of leave it there and we'll talk on uh, Sunday. She writes, I received many beautiful revelations of love and teachings of boundless wisdom. The seventh showing revealed that bo both joy and suffering are bound up with the human experience. When we are illumined by grace and touched with well-being, we believe that our joy will never end. When the sadness and weariness of life descend on us, we are tempted to believe that this, too, is endless. But we take refuge in a deep inner knowing that just as God's love uplifts us in joy, it protects us in sorrow. Okay, I think we'll leave it there for today. I hope there was something uh, helpful or at least thought-provoking in that. I know I had a couple of long readings and a weird rant on Justin Bieber, but I look forward to uh, parsing it out and talking about uh, all of that and demons on Sunday morning. So if uh, you have time to join us on Sundays, we meet on Zoom at 10. Uh, if you haven't joined us, feel free to send us a DM on Instagram and I will send you the Zoom link for that. And with that, as always, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well.